Judges chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. This is what God's Word says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned them, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back to their corrupt They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He said, because this people have transgressed My covenant that I I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. There are many things that influence our lives. No no matter how much we think of ourselves as strong and independent, kind of pound our chest, I'm independent person. We're heavily influenced by all kinds of things. If we weren't, then there'd be a lot less commercials on television. It's funny how we are okay with being influenced by certain things, certain people, famous people. But you tell one of the students today that they look like their parents and they'll freak out. I'm going to be influenced by people that I don't know, but don't make it people I live with. Right? We're influenced by all kinds of things. No matter how much we might want to think, I'm not influenced, I'm striking out on my own path, I'm my own person, I do my own thing. Nobody influences me. We are heavily influenced people in so many ways. And this morning, what, what I want us to do is, I, more than I want us to walk verse by verse through this text, and some of you are going, because that was a lot of verses, I, 
I want us to see here an example of influences, two influences. The influence of sin and the influence of grace. The influence of sin that that comes in like a polluted stream flowing in bringing death, destruction, disaster. And yet at the same time, rivers, gushing rivers of grace. What I would submit to you this morning is that in our lives there are streams of sin and rivers of grace. And I want us to learn from this example, see from this example as we walk through this text this morning. So let's do this. Let's first look at sin. Right in the beginning here, in verse 11, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we need to get a little uh, a little bit of context here because we haven't been in the book of Judges. So what's happened? How do we get to a people called Israel. Well, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. And He says He's going to make him into a great nation, and then that He's going to give those people the land that Abraham gets to spend his life camping in. I know, for some of you that sounds like a blessing. God calls Abraham, says, go camp the rest of your life. Some of you are like, that's amazing. Then us normal people are like, no thank you. Go camp, and in that land that you're camping in, all those days, eventually I'm going to give that to your descendants. Abraham has long since died. Israel eventually ends up down in Egypt where they multiply and then God raises up a man by the name of Moses. And Moses, uh, through Moses, God brings about this great redemption in bringing Israel out of Egypt. And then they get to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because He led them to the promised land after drawing them to Himself at Mount Sinai and giving them His law. He, He brings them to the edge of the promised land, he says, go in and take it. And they say, no, don't think so. So they wander for 40 years, as God says, that generation would die off. And yet, and yet, although they're wandering for 40 years because of punishment every day, he provides them with manna to eat and water to drink. And he makes sure, as Scripture says, that their clothes didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell in the desert heat. Joshua dies, Joshua. Moses dies, and then Joshua comes. He's going to die too, spoiler alert. But he, Moses dies, Joshua comes. And God raises up Joshua as the man who's going to lead Israel into the promised land. And so sure enough, they're there, they're at the edge of the promised land. There wasn't a sign that said promised land. It was just the land that was promised. It wasn't like an amusement park or anything. They say, he says, I'm going to take you in. They go, they're going in. They cross the River Jordan, great battle of Jericho. And then they continue in, cutting the land in half. And this great conquest takes place. So what happens? What happens between Joshua and entering the promised land and the fulfillment of all these promises and things seeming to go really well to get to verse 11 where it says, and the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, when you start the book of Judges, Barring the fact that it begins with after the death of Joshua, it goes pretty well. No offense to Joshua. Joshua dies, just like Moses died, just like Abraham died. You know, there is this rhythm of the Old Testament. 
It's like when you're riding down the highway and you hit a bridge and it's like da 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 And it's, he lived and he died and he lived and he died and he lived and he died and he lived and he died. And here's the amazing thing and something, just a little side note that we need to be reminded of in American evangelicalism is that God's plans and purposes do not hang around the neck of any man. Moses is raised up and he dies and God does not stop. His plans and purposes didn't hinge on Abraham, they didn't hinge on Moses, they didn't hinge on Joshua. He's going to accomplish his purposes. And in our culture that's so uniquely built for celebrities, and even within evangelicalism, we like our celebrity pastors, men who have their radio, well maybe not radio, podcasts, and they have their study Bibles and their commentaries and exposit God's Word, and we can begin to think that what will happen when they die, I'll tell you what will happen. Jesus will move forward because it's His church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And that's not to down any of them, just saying. That was all extra, side note. Well, Judges starts out well. You've got Judah and Simeon, two tribes, and they're working together to drive people out. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. But then as you get to verse 18, things begin to change. From verse 18 to verse 36, which is the last verse in chapter 1, nine times there's one phrase repeated. They did not drive them out. And they did not drive them out nine times. I won't repeat it nine times. It'd be dramatic, but I won't. Then as you get to the end of the chapter, it doesn't just say they didn't drive them out, but then four times it says they put them to forced labor. Now when you read Judges chapter 1, there are moments when Israel comes to attack a certain people and it seems to be really hard. I mean, these people weren't like, okay, you guys are here, I quit, (laughs) take my house. They they were fighting back. And it seems as though there were moments it was really difficult, but certainly if you get to the place where you can force someone to be your slave, you could probably chase them away. Right? I mean, it takes a lot more authority and power to be able to force someone into slavery than it does to be able to kill them or chase them off. So it seems pretty clear to me as you come to the close of Judges chapter 1 that Israel has the ability to drive people out, but they're not driving people out. And so as we come into Judges chapter 2, we have this declaration from the angel of the Lord in verse 2 that they have not obeyed. Well, what haven't they obeyed? Flip to Deuteronomy or turn to Deuteronomy or tap to Deuteronomy, whatever it is that you're doing. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what the Lord commanded. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1. This is what the Lord had commanded Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, then the Lord your God gives, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Destruction. 
You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to those to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the command and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. What has God commanded? He's commanded Israel as they go into this land to show no mercy, to not spare any life, to destroy everything, including the idols and including the altars. They were to destroy them all. Now, I know that seems harsh, but we have to understand that there's a convergence of God's sovereign plan happening here. When God made a promise to Abraham that He was going to give him this land back in Genesis in chapter 15, He made very clear that there would be time. Time because the sins of the Canaanites was not mature. It wasn't full. It wasn't complete. But at the time of Joshua, the time as they're entering into the promised land, God is bringing together His promise that He had made to Abraham. It's the time for them to enter the promised land. And at the same time, the sins of the people of the land was complete. So God's fulfilling a promise to Israel. And at the same time, He is enacting judgment on a sinful and corrupt people. And it's converging together and God says to them, drive them all out, destroy them all, do not show any mercy. Now we read that whole passage because I wanted you to see where that was rooted in. This command of God was not rooted in some some old, mean, grouchy guy who's sitting back and he's saying, I just want to make your life miserable. Where is it rooted in? What what does God root this command in? It's rooted in His love for Israel. His command is rooted in His love. He's saying to them, I want to make sure that you are not led astray. I've set my affections on you. You are my people. I am your God. I want you to enjoy me and I am going to enjoy you as my treasured possession. And yet, what happens? Well, as the phrase says, and is repeated over and over again in the book of Judges, seven times we hear this phrase, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
What happened with Israel is that they did not obey. They decided to to compromise a little bit. They they decided that instead of driving people out and continuing to, to do what God commanded, that maybe they would just submit people to forced labor. You know, as I look at that phrase, I'm reminded of this, and this is so important as we, as we think through this issue of sin and consider sin in our lives. It is God and God alone who determines what sin is. It's not a subjective thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not a political thing. Evil is decided by God and God alone. God had given a command, and when His people did not obey His command, it was sin, period. Evil is determined from God's perspective, from His viewpoint, from His vantage point. We know that, right? We know that, right? Okay, yeah, I got that. But the reality is is that we are all tempted to shift from labeling sin and evil in our lives what it is. If I can just downgrade it a little bit, if I can just switch the label on the outside from sin, from it being evil, and make it just a slight compromise, then maybe it's not so bad. It's not up to us to determine what is evil and what is not. It wasn't up to Israel to change God's plans and decide, well, you know, God, we were good with driving everybody out and destroying everything. Then it got really hard, and so, you know, we took a boat. Popular opinion said that we should just submit them to forced labor, better for the economy. So that's the route we went. No, evil is determined by the Lord. Sin is determined by Him. It's not contingent upon our perspective or some subjective feeling that we have. How important it is to be reminded of that. Not only that, but in that little phrase, we're reminded that all sin takes place in the presence of God. They did evil because God saw it as evil and He called it evil and it happened in His sight. Now this would have been a little bit of a stretch for Israel as they're learning about this God, Yahweh. Because the idols of the other nations, they weren't like this. They had their temples that kind of contained them. Their sacred spots that you went to. Really the relationship was one of mutual understanding. I appease you, you do some good things for me, and then in the end it all works out. But really my private life, you know, that's me. That's okay. I kind of... And then comes along Yahweh. Yahweh who has commands like, do not covet. Wait, what? That's like, that's heart stuff. Yahweh who as they go into Jericho, right? The, The walls have fallen down. They go into Jericho. What has God said? Don't take anything. Don't take anything. And there's one guy... There's always the one guy. There's one guy. And he takes stuff. And guess who knows? God knows. Of all of the tribes of Israel, God knew the exact tribe. He knew the exact clan. He knew the exact family. He knew the exact man. Because all sin takes place in the sight of the Lord. We all at times have this Jonah complex where we're convinced that there is some 
boat in our lives and some compartment on that boat where we can go down in, if we close our eyes, cover up, God can't see us. He doesn't know what we're doing. If I'm good enough on Sundays, I can live however I want at work, and God will be okay with that. Somehow I think because I, it takes my fingerprint to unlock my phone, God doesn't know what I'm doing on that thing. Right? See, because you've got to have my fingerprint to get in the... Oh yeah, you made my fingerprint. Yo, okay. There's no incognito searching on the internet with God. There's no private space. There's no place where you can retreat and withdraw and say, I don't want you here. He sees all. And He decides what sin is. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see it went quickly from just simply compromising on driving people out to what? By the time we get to verse 11, what do we see them doing? Serving the Baals. Look at verse 11, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It gets even worse, says they went after other gods. Don't get a picture in your mind of Israel here as this this victim, and they just got into a bad neighborhood. In the bad neighborhood, you know, they, they didn't want to get involved in the bad stuff, but then they kept getting peer pressured and bullied, and then finally, no, they went after other gods themselves, they pursued them. It continues to get worse because it says that they bowed down to them. And verse 13 says they served them, which is the idea of worship. They were actively submitting themselves and serving other gods. Psalm chapter 106 tells us that part of the worship of these Baals was even to take their own sons and daughters and offer them up as sacrifices. Now I know, we look at this, and we go, that's awful. We say it's disgusting, it's despicable. This is one of the reasons that you don't often find judges in the story book Bibles, right? Right? You don't see judges. If you get a judge, it's Samson, and he's the big guy with the muscles, you know how they waddle like this. You get Samson, he's kind of scrubbed clean of all the crazy, nasty stuff that happens in his life, but we leave all this out because it is so bad. These are God's people on whom He has set His affection. They were not a people, and He made them a people, and He has been faithful to them over and over and over again. And now what are they doing? They're rebelling against Him. They're forsaking Him. They're going after other gods. One of the reasons, I am absolutely convinced, one of the reasons that Judges is in the Bible is so that we are forced to deal with the muck and the filth and the destructiveness of sin. It's a vivid picture for us. We talk about this section of Scripture as a sin cycle. And indeed it is. Right? There, there, there is the, there's a rebellion that happens, and so God raises up plunderers who plunder. It's like one of my favorite lines in there. What do plunderers? They plunder. Okay. 
they plunder, and then it goes back around to God raises up a judge, and then once there's relief, what does Israel do? Go back to sinning. And we call it a cycle, and indeed it is a cycle, but don't picture a fat hamster on a wheel just running in circles. You know, that squeaky, just going in one place. Because that's not the book of Judges. Oh, there's a cycle, all right. There's a cycle of sin, but it's not standing still. It's not a treadmill. It is getting progressively worse. It is going down and down and down and down. God is so clear in His Word from Genesis all the way through to the end that sin only produces one thing. Never anything else. So from Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when God says to Adam and Eve, Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you will what? You will die. Then you jump all the way to almost the end of Scripture in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. And James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death! It is always death. It is never anything else. Sin never produces anything but death and destruction. Never anything else. And we can sit here and we can read the book of Judges and we can see all of these things and yet in our own foolishness, we evaluate our own lives and we think, well, if I just change the label, shh, if I just change the label, I don't call it sin. It'll be okay. I'm just going to hide it over here. No one will see. As long as I can keep it hidden, I can keep it under control. I've got this. Israel becomes so deluded by their sinfulness, so broken in their understanding, death seeps in so deeply that by the time that great guy, Samson, busts on the scene, I struggle to call him great, I don't know, it doesn't really fit, but that guy, Samson, long flowing hair, the first Fabio, when he busts on the scene... And he begins to agitate the Philistines. And he does this really whacked out thing where he grabs a bunch of foxes and ties their tails together and sets the, you know, the, the torch in there and sends them through the wheat harvest. Guys, some of the guys are writing that down. I can see them now. They're like, hey, hey, hey. Obviously the Philistines are upset. So they go to get Samson and Samson does like one of the few things he's good at. And he beats some people up. <laughs> and then he runs away. And so the Philistines in anger attack a, a town of Judah. And so you would think in their minds, hey, the Spirit of the Lord is on this long-haired guy. So let's call him and we'll take 3,000 of our warriors and we'll go and we'll, we'll attack the Philistines and we'll just... We'll... What do they do? Do you know what they do? Judges chapter 15, this is what they do. They take 3,000 men of Judah. This is how you know they knew Samson was strong. 3,000 guys to get one guy. 
They go to him and they say, we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. They're upset with Samson because he's agitating things. And this is what they say. They say to Samson, don't you know the Philistines rule over us? This is God's covenant people. These are the ones who for years He has shown His faithfulness that He would fulfill His covenant promises to Abraham. He would take them into the land and by His mighty hand they would have shalom there, peace, they would rest, and no one would be able to uproot them. And now as sin creeps into their mind and as it destroys as it always does, they become so distorted in their view they're content to be ruled over by the Philistines. It's what sin does. It's what sin does. And what I want to ask you this morning as you look at this, this vivid example in this text is I just want you to consider not in a, a condemning way. Certainly not because this guy's standing up here saying, hey, I got it all together. Get with the program. No, but because as I have worked through the book of Judges and seen just sins just jumping off of the page, I find myself going to the Lord and saying, Oh God, where, where in my life are streams of sin flowing in and I have become numb to their consequences? Where am I saying, Don't you know the Philistines rule over me? Don't you understand this is just the way it is? Don't you understand that gossip's just a part of life? Don't you understand that slander's okay when it comes to politics? Don't you understand there's a little bit of racism in all of us and you just have to accept it? Don't you understand that it's just, it's okay, it's not that bad, and that the pollution just streams in? Oh, how foolish we are. We're like all of those people who post videos on YouTube of two individuals holding exercise balls and then running at each other as fast as they can, assuming there will be a good outcome. And it doesn't matter how many times the video gets posted, there's always another one. No, this time it'll work. That's the way we are. Here God describes the depravity, the death, and the destruction of sin, and yet we run off into our lives and we go, no, this time it'll work. Surely this can't be a bad idea. I mean, I see what it did to Israel, but we're in the new covenant, so. Beloved, please hear me. God is not trying to keep good things from you. He is not trying to hoard away a good life. He is not commanding things of you and pointing out things that are evil because He wants to destroy you, but because He loves you. And because He is all wise and He sees evil for what it is. Please, please, oh that we would see the wickedness. It becomes so broken. There's this small little phrase in verse 20. As God speaks, listen to what He says. Verse 20, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He said, listen to this, 
Now think back to the Deuteronomy passage that we read and listen to this. Because this people. What was the language of Deuteronomy? These are my people and I'm their God. They are my treasured possession. And now the destructive nature of sin has come in and from God's own mouth they become this people. Now I know, and, and I'm, I'm taking a little side note here, and I may get myself in trouble on this one, and that's okay, it's my birthday, so I'm just going to run out there boldly and ask forgiveness later. There may be some of you who know the book of Judges because, I don't know, maybe your life verse is in there. That'd be weird. But... You're going, yeah, but what about Judges chapter 2, verse 10? Can't we just sum up all of the wickedness that we see in Judges and hang it around the neck of bad parenting? Right? That's the problem, because Judges chapter 2, verse 10, the second half of verse 10 says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. See? What happened was they let their kids go to public school. And this is what happens. What happens is they didn't spank their children enough. Their rules weren't good enough. And this is what happens. Folks, listen to me. The outcome of judges does not take any intervention whatsoever. To get to the place where we are whoring after other gods does not take anything miraculous to happen. Now, as I've studied it through, I do not think you can take chapter 2, verse 10 and use it as a means to argue that the previous generation failed. The reason being that word no is taken in the sense of experience. It's the same word used to talk about Ruth, that she went to a people she didn't know. Well, what people did Ruth go to? Well, she went to the Jewish people. Oh, she didn't know Jews existed? She was married to one. What is he, what's the point? The point is that she had not lived among those people. She had not experienced that before. The same word is used of Eli's sons, that they didn't know the Lord. Well, well these were guys who ministered as priests. They didn't know God. Oh yeah, they knew about Him. But they were wicked and they did not know Him. There's a reminder here for all of us as parents to two things. First of all, to plead before God every day for the lives of our children. I don't care how certain and convinced you are that your method of parenting is just the right method. We are absolutely helpless to make our children know God. We can teach them about God, but we cannot make them know God. We should be praying, as parents we should be praying, as a community of believers here at this church, pray over the lives of these young people, over the children in this church, just because they're a part of Baraka Bible Church, where they hear expository preaching, does not therefore mean that they will walk with God and know Him. We pray over them, we plead for them, and please, please show grace. 
please show grace. We, out of an attempt to lighten our own conscience, when we see sin this wicked, we want to, and I know because I do it, we want to package it all up in a nice, tight, clean little way and pin it all on something. Pin it on bad parenting. Pin it on the culture. Pin it on a political view. Pin it on something. But please, don't remind me that all of us in Adam are sinners and we sin because we're sinners. And that inside of each one of us is the full potential to total rebellion against God. There's sin, streams of sin. Well, let's run to grace. Guys are probably like, I was, I was ready for that like 10 minutes ago. The sin was easy to see, but I want you to see, I want you to see grace here. Because there is grace. And it shows up, first of all, where we might not expect it. There's grace in God's anger and in His faithful punishment. Verse 14 says, So the Lord, as a result of them rebelling, as a result of them bowing down, as a result of them going after other gods, just like He promised, so the Lord, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now I know we hear that word anger, and we are so prone to project our anger onto the Lord that His anger looks like ours, but it's not that way. This is not God angry in the sense that now He is just gonna, He's just gonna destroy everything in His path. They, they've messed Him up. He was trying to watch the Georgia game yesterday and they kept sinning and now it's on. You're gonna experience my wrath. It's, it's not it. This is the loving affection of a covenant God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 26, God repeats through Moses this warning about coming into the land and adopting their gods. And in the midst of it, he says this because the Lord your God is a consuming fire, he is a jealous God. You want God to be a jealous God because his jealousy is attached to his love. As one commentator put it, if you had a couple that spent years in marriage together, raised kids together, then when the kids leave the home, the husband becomes unfaithful, he's chasing after all kinds of women and, 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 just, and will not listen and will not come back. And, and if the response of the wife is, well, you know, we had a good run. It's good. Got some pictures, I'll look back over those. Go have some fun, I guess. We'd be appalled. What would we expect out of that wife? We would expect jealousy. We would expect her to say, No, this is wrong. You are mine. We belong to each other. That's what we see here in God as He reacts in anger. He does hear exactly what He said He would do. We're told in verse 15, we're told that, 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 he, that He had warned them. Verse 15, as the Lord had warned them, as the Lord had sworn to them. He told them He was going to do this. 
Now again, I know, if you're like me, you know, top level parent here, you think about the warnings that you've given. (laughs) And you maybe compare those with the warnings that God gives. If you don't shut up, I'm going to take my fork and shove it up your nose. Right? That's my kind of warning. I will ground you for the rest of your life. Stop talking! Right? It's anger. It's you're annoying me. It's not the loving warning. That's not the way God warns. It's not a threat in the sense of, I just wish you'd stop annoying me. It is a loving warning of concern. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. You do not want to go there. And if you try to go there because I love you, I am going to stand in your way. I am going to do everything within my power to keep you from the destruction that's on the path that you are headed on. I am going to stand in your way. I'm going to do all that I can. And a loving parent, when they've warned in that way and the child starts to go that way, does not go, well, they called my bluff. That gum. No, what do they do? With love, they stand in their way. They discipline They're faithful. God here is being faithful. He disciplines in His holy anger because He is a God of love who is a consuming fire and He is jealous. That's a good thing. You know, you want to see the intensity of sin? Just read through Judges and see all of the punishments that God devises for Israel. And keep in the back of your mind that God in punishing Israel is punishing them sometimes for years on end trying to keep them from a greater destruction that would come to them through sin. None of the punishments that God levies on Israel are as bad as what they are running to in sin and the evil that they are doing. God's in full control of all of this. We see that. It's Him who raises up these plunderers who plunder. In verse 14, it's the Lord who sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then we see that it is in verse 15, His hand that is against them. The Lord's hand. How tragic is that? That the Lord's hand that was the one that drew them out of Egypt and the one that was to go before them and fight on their behalf is now standing in opposition to them. But it is not in some kind of bitter, vicious, wicked revenge. It is standing in opposition to keep them from what would destroy them. And so, because now they have abandoned the Lord, they are being attacked by these plunderers. The hand of the Lord is against them. It says at the end of verse 15, they were in terrible distress. They were in terrible distress. And then look at verse 16, because it is so good. What does it say? They're in terrible distress. And it says, then. Then. In that moment of terrible distress. Why? Terrible distress because they were being attacked 
by people, you know, they were innocent and they were good and they're experiencing terrible distress. No, they are suffering the consequences of their own sinful choices. Not just foolish choices, sinful choices. And it says, then, at that moment, what does God do? The Lord raised up judges. Now, we go, okay, He raised up judges, that's nice, but li- listen, listen to what the text says because the text tells us why He raises up judges. The text tells us the reason that He raises them up. In verse 18, it tells us why God raised these judges up. For the Lord, midway through verse 18, for the Lord was moved to what? Pity. The Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now that word pity is the same word that in other places carries the sense of to repent. So in Genesis it's used leading up to the flood that God repented of making man. That's not totally the sense here, but I want you to get the weight of that word. This is the image of a loving father who because he loves his children is disciplining them And as He watches them suffer the consequences of His discipline, He is not calloused and cold and removed. His heart is broken in their suffering. And so He's moved to pity. Now listen to me. It is not because Israel is now so repentant. It is not because Israel is now saying, I'm sorry, I realize that I've done wrong, I'll never do it again, and genuinely repentant. I would argue that there is not a single point in the entire book of Judges where Israel repents. Not a single moment. This word groaning here does not signify repentance in any way. It was not because of anything in Israel that God was moved to pity and compassion for them. It was because of who He is that He was moved towards them. This word groaning, if you really want to blow your mind, this word groaning is the same word that you find in Exodus in chapter 2. What's going on in Exodus chapter 2? Well, in Exodus chapter 2, there's this people. We think of them as the good guys. And they were trapped in Egypt. And God's going to deliver them from the bad guys because Egypt is the bad guys and Israel's the good guys. That's not the message of Egypt. That's not the story of Exodus. The story isn't good guys, bad guys. The story is that a sovereign God laid His affection on a people and chose them although there was nothing good in them. And He was faithful to His promises. And He called them out. They were no better than the Egyptians. But because of God's sovereign grace, He drew them out. He heard them as they groaned under their suffering. And here He hears them and He has pity on them as they groan in their suffering because of the afflictions that they brought on themselves. And so He raises up judges. (laughs) And these judges come... One commentator gave this great word picture. He said it's like God and Israel are sitting in a boat together, a wooden boat, and Israel keeps drilling holes in the boat. And it begins to fill with water. So God raises up a judge to plug the hole in the boat. Then what do they do? Go over and drill another hole. 
God raised up another judge, plugs a hole in the boat. Things are getting progressively worse because the boat keeps filling and sinking and sinking and sinking. And God continues in pity to move towards them, to lavish His grace upon them. But here's what He will not do. He won't transform the boat into a steel boat. He won't allow Israel to just try and drill holes, drill holes in rebellion with no consequences. Oh no. Grace does not make sin safe. God's grace is never a license for it. And He would not teach that to His children. But yet, even as He disciplines them, it is not devoid or separated from His steadfast love towards them. So He's moved towards them in pity. What a beautiful picture. Now, He says that as He pronounces on them this judgment, He says to them that He is going to test them. And we don't have time to go into all that testing would be, but here's what I I think. Does Israel, covenant Israel, they needed to obey the law of God. Yes, they needed to get back to that. Absolutely they did. But God was after more than an external obedience. He didn't just want them to return to obeying the law. Should they? Yes. Should they obey His command and drive the people out? Absolutely they should. But He wanted more than that. And so He says of them that He's going to test them. And it's the same word that's used of testing Abraham. When God tested Abraham, what was He after? Did He just want Abraham to be a morally better guy? Did He just want Abraham to clean up his act a little bit? Was he after, was his end game external conformity to a standard? No, because the law hadn't even been given yet. What was God after? He wanted Abraham's faith to grow. He wanted Abraham to trust Him above anything else and all else. And so we read in the book of Romans that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God looks on in compassion this rebellious generation who does not know Him through experience and have not experienced His works. And He's saying, listen, I'm going to raise up plunders and they're going to plunder you and then you're going to taste My grace as I raise up judges and I want you to obey My law. But more than that, I'm going to test you because I want you to trust Me. I want you to put your faith in Me and it to be declared righteousness. That's what I want. That's what He was after. He wanted them to be circumcised, yes, because it was a sign of the covenant, but He wanted them to be circumcised in heart. Now maybe after all that you're still going, well, I'm not sure that grace is here. Let me just remind you of this. While all of the book of Judges is going on, the next book over, there's this little story about a girl named Ruth. The story isn't even actually about her, and it's not about Boaz, and it's not about romance. But it's about a Moabite woman who, instead of forsaking her mother-in-law, forsook her people. And while all of this is going on, God works in such a way has to move in this Moabite woman and in this man named Boaz so that a marriage would take place. And then through that marriage, 
in the genealogy that ends the book of Ruth, it would lead to a king named David. So we jump to David's life. We go, he's going he's gonna to do it. He's going to be the good one. Oh, nope. God makes a covenant with David and he says, a king is coming through you. A king who is better. The king that you desire, the king you long for, the Messiah that you need. As you finish the book of Judges, no one is going, as Patrick said, going, we just needed a better judge. We just need to try harder. We just need a good king. Going, we need someone to save us from the wickedness that is inside of us. And God, in the midst of all of this, is moving forward so that at just the right time, his son would be born. And he would be faithful to the law that Israel rebelled against. He would be faithful all the way to the cross. And he would drink to the very bottom the full wrath of God. There's grace. There's grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Beloved, I want you just to think this morning and consider in your lives, are there areas of sin in my life? Are there areas where I have become numb to sin because I have allowed it to endure? And look at the book of Judges and don't allow yourself to downplay it, try to hide it, or do any of those things. See the filth and destruction that it brings and believe what your loving God says. It only ever brings destruction. And run to Him. Don't try harder. Don't say, okay, I'll stop it. You can't stop it. Run to Him. You need Him. And then I want you to also consider this, that right now in your life, in every moment of your life, there are streams, rivers, torrents of God's grace that are pouring down upon you. And they have a huge impact on your life. Whether you acknowledge them or not, God is working out and accomplishing His purposes. And nothing will stand in His way. His grace is unstoppable. And in the moment when you get possibly to a time like Judges in your life and you think, my sin is abounded too great, know, as Romans says, that grace hyperabounds. We see those two flowing into your life and see the way you're influenced by them. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that You do not overlook our sin. I thank You that You are not content to allow us to persist in our sin. I pray this morning that in each one of our lives You would search us I don't know, maybe there are some of us here this morning who as I talk about those things, we even think about a specific area of sin in our lives. We know there's an area that you maybe even are already convicting us of and we've been resistant. I pray, Lord, that we would believe Your Word. That we would believe what You say about evil and sin. And that we wouldn't leave this place thinking we can do better, we can try harder, we can conquer it this week. But we would run to You for all of the ways that we fail. We would see that You are better in all of the ways that we are incapable. You are capable for all of the ways we lack faith. You are faithful.
We'd run to you. And I pray that we would be overwhelmed as we consider as well the rivers of grace that flow into our lives. And that no matter what's going on around us, no matter what our circumstances at any given moment might be telling us, we would be assured that we are recipients of grace that if it all landed on us in a moment would crush us. Because it is rich and unending. May we leave most of all rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.